Welcome, everyone, to the MBIT Podcast. I am your host, Seamus Medan, and today, Landon Sanford joins the podcast to discuss his journey as a founder of over 10 companies, with many of them being in the AI space. On the podcast, we will be discussing how Landon became interested in entrepreneurship, his journey raising millions from VC firms and investors like David Sachs at Craft Ventures, the co-founders of HubSpot, Honey, Kayak, Vercel, and more. Before we continue, thank you, Landon, for taking the time to hop on the pod. How's your week going so far? Good. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you taking the time. So let's go back to the very beginning, when you first became interested in entrepreneurship. Yeah, started was in high school. Actually, I was living kind of on a beach growing up in Charleston, South Carolina, this island, uh, Sullivan's Island. And a friend of mine just saw that parking, especially during the summer and summer weekends, was crazy at the beach. And we, we both had golf carts at our houses. We put signs on the front of our golf carts that said, Beach and Back Shelter Services Tips tips accepted and just kind of drove people around. So it was just kind of like a casual way to um, get some tips and, and, and get some things. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, we, we both had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, it, w- it was by no means a full-time job, but just during weekends. And I think it's what got me hooked. And that was, yeah, I was 15 or 16 at the time. And fast forwarding to present day, what are some of the companies that you've started and worked with? And what was your journey founding those companies? Yeah, I, I guess, uh, you know, I, I guess on my LinkedIn or something like that, it might look like I've started 10 or, or, or a lot. I'd say, one, I haven't succeeded in any. Uh, I have failed in all of them. And then two, a lot of them have been kind of more experiments in terms of trying to launch an MVP or something and diving more into it and de- deciding not to raise for it or something like that. So there have only been three main kind of companies that have that have raised money for at least over a million in, in funding for. But that that started since I graduated college. When I, when I graduated college, I didn't have a job lined up. Kind of a longer story where I had this double knee surgery incident. It put me on the bed for eight months. And I told myself I needed to start something that eight months uh, or nine months there led me to, to start my first company, which was kind of like a travel app and learned a lot from that experience and then just kind of kept going after that. And after the numerous failed startups, a lot of founders would normally give up, but you kept going instead of picking another profession. What has kept you in the space of entrepreneurship? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. My parents asked me that a good bit. I'd say a few things. I, I hear constantly that startups, it's just you, you just keep swinging until one strikes. One of my companies uh, was investor from Sequoia. And I distinctly remember a conversation with a partner from Sequoia who just talked about that, where you just keep launching stuff until one works. There's also some different kind of blog posts and things talking about that. I'd say the most notable one, this guy Naval Ravikant, he has a, a Twitter thread about how to gain wealth and he talks about startups. And he, that's kind of like his playbook. You need to own equity in something and you just keep starting stuff until one works. And I think with each swing I've had at bat, I, I've hopefully learned a little bit, gotten a little bit better at being able to raise money or, or build a team or get people excited learn more about what to do and not to do. And that's kind of my current plan. I quit my last job maybe in 2020, I think. And I said I I didn't want to ever do like a full-time interview kind of job for that. So we'll see if that lasts. But I I like the process. That's my current plan is just keep launching stuff and and see if it works. And it could be three months from now is, is when things pop or it could be three years or 30 years. But I've enjoyed it. It doesn't feel like, you know, even with failures, like I, I still find it more fun than like a corporate job or, or something that, that that I have done. So that's just kind of been my playbook, I guess. And that's just from some of these conversations. Yeah, I agree. And even here at the podcast, there are a lot of late nights to get to where I want to go. And it's not really a problem just because I really enjoy the journey and the process. And it's something that I just love doing. And speaking of your entrepreneurship journey, Mark Cuban is quoted saying, you only have to be right once. And after I've talked to a lot of founders, if they start a company and they fail, 
fail. Some of the most driven ones, their first company might not be a big success, but the second or third one could end up super far. 100%. Yeah. And I'd say like another thing that I've kind of picked up on is I one project I did end up lasting like, like four or five years and ended up becoming like a COVID podcast that I did was I just talked with a lot of senior citizens as well as people on their deathbeds. I talked with some terminal illness patients. And the thing that like really struck me was some of the conversations with people talking about regret. It kind of shaped my perspective where I think regret is the bigger fear that I have more so than failure. When, when you see someone, you know, talk about like regretting not going for it or regret playing it safe. Life is short and life is, it goes by quick and I'd rather kind of go for it. And even if it's 50 failures and I'm fortunate to live to 70 or 80, but like, I, I feel like it, it was an exciting ride. I'd much rather have that than, than trying to play it safe. And I think a lot of those conversations also kind of impacted my perspective on just the view, views of, of risk and that kind of long-term perspective on it all. Definitely think that's a great point. And speaking of some of the other companies, recently you've dived into AI companies like Compose AI, a browser extension that auto-completes sentences using artificial intelligence. You went through Y Combinator and raised $2.2 million from investors that we mentioned earlier. What is Compose AI and what's the story behind it? Yeah, so Compose AI is basically a free browser extension to automate your writing. So kind of like in Gmail, when you're typing an email and it finishes a sentence for you, Compose AI kind of did that, but across all your tools and devices. And ideally, the thought process was it gets better and better, where it learns your writing style, and hopefully one day it could write a full email for you or a full message or document for you in your voice. That was that was the thought process. I actually started working on that. It was kind of like a hackathon. I was co-living with a group of founders in Tulum with a group called Launch House back in the fall of 2020. And some friends were working on this hackathon for this project. And long story short, kind of working on it, went through Iconic and raised some money, ended up leaving that last summer. But it was it was a it was a fun ride. And a, a, a exciting. And it's still going. Definitely an exciting product. Totally agree. And when we're taking a look at the AI industry from the macro perspective, according to a Gartner survey, 37% of companies across all industries are currently using AI. What are some of the problems AI is currently solving from an internal standpoint? And then what are some of the problems we could see AI solve in the future? That's a great question. Um, I don't know for, from an internal standpoint. I mean, there's just so many use cases in terms of AI and, e and even just like recent developments like GDP3 and things like that. It's, it's amazing to think of like where AI could be in three years, five years, 10 years, because it's, it's still very early in the industry. I'd say like from my perspective with AI, I am by no means an expert. In it. I'm, I'm, I'm also not a developer. I'm a product manager and kind of more uh, the business side of things. Uh, so I, I can't talk through the complexities of building any of this. But I think what led me to the AI uh, and now to, to Web3 and crypto is I think venture-backed entrepreneurship, the market is much more important than I realized compared to when I first started my, my first company, where my first company was a travel app. I enjoyed it, but it, it wasn't very different. And it, it felt very tough to differentiate. And we, we you know, just added small features, but there were like 10,000 other travel apps. And it was really tough to emerge. And I'm a much bigger fan now of like the Mike Maple School of Thought of backcasting, where venture-backed entrepreneurship is more about viewing the future five years from now or 10 years from now, coming back to the present and building out for that future. And there's a lot more white space there and a lot more opportunities to kind of differentiate within that futuristic lens. That's what led me to AI initially was I, I think it was just much more exciting. And, it, and it's kind of weird. It's weird in a way where it's, it can be easier to build like a hard startup than an easier startup where it was easier to raise money on something like an AI automation writing platform versus a travel app. 
which is ironic or kind of not ironic, but just kind of odd in a way. But that's what led me to AI initially. And as a many time founder, you've been to Launch House. What was your experience as a founder at Launch House? And what was some of the most important lessons you've learned over there? Yeah, communities is so important. And it's something that I didn't fully appreciate when I first started out, where my first, you know, three years or four years of starting startups was kind of siloed in Charleston. And there, there wasn't, you know, there's, there's a startup scene, but not a huge startup scene, where I, I think I probably would have learned a lot more if the start of my journey, I'd moved to San Francisco, or if I'd moved to New York and really try to get plugged in. Now, since COVID, a lot of those communities are virtual. And uh, I think On Deck is a great example of that. I really enjoyed uh, their community. And then Launch House has just kind of like recreated that Silicon Valley garage experience, but in actual houses. I've I've loved their group. And I mean, it, I guess I'm trying to think. I've done it with Tulum and, and then also stopped by. They, they have a house in New York and a house in LA. And it's, you know, 25 founders living together. The energy is just palpable where that excitement of talking with other people, talking with other founders, bouncing ideas around. It's totally different compared to working from home or working from a coffee shop where if you're working remotely, it can kind of be, um, uh, you know, lonely or just like a, a routine, just kind of day in, day out. And I think groups like Launch House, that community is just very valuable for just kind of helping everyone support each other. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of them. What are some of your takeaways and lessons learned that you've learned uh, through being at Launch House with that community? Yeah, I'd say, well, one, it's amazing. Like even I, I think the I was part of the first cohort where um, it was fall 2020. Michael, Brett, Jacob, they, they started it just kind of not with the intention of it becoming a company. It just started just kind of like as a we need to get out of our cities because of COVID and because of lockdown. Um, and now even with those that initial group of people, almost everyone has started a company um, or, or raised money. And at the time, a lot of people were still at their full-time jobs. So I, I think it's amazing just kind of like seeing when you're around like-minded people, it can kind of have an impact what you think is possible or what, what you think you can do in terms of if you're trying to buy other people who are, who are doing XYZ or, 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 or just doing things one way, but then you're immersed in an, an environment where everyone's thinking big or dreaming big or doing these kind of interesting things in startup realm. Like I think it was just kind of palpable and had an impact on me and I've, I've made some good friendships from that. So I'd say that was one is it, just kind of like seeing the energy from that and, 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 and being a part of it really, really kind of like lasts for a long time. I think that makes a lot of sense. And going back to it being easier to raise money for AI, one of the reasons it could be considered to be easier was because it's a developing industry like we're seeing with Web3. And that transitions here into your Web3 startup that you're building. Could you tell us a little bit more about your fundraising journey with that startup? Yeah, definitely. I, I raised about $1.25 million in December, January. And it was, uh, it was kind of more, more based on a thesis act. And basically, a lot of the social and consumer platforms I'd seen in Web3 were all just clones and copycats. They're a, a tokenized version of, of Twitter and YouTube and TikTok. And I, I didn't think that was enough to get people to switch. And part of that was just from experience with my first startup where it, it, it didn't feel different enough. And, and I think you need things to be vastly different to get them to switch from A to B. So that was the, that was the thought process. And, and there, there's kind of a, a good playbook from Key to Beer on, on Twitter. And that's, that's kind of what we've been utilizing. We've been just launching different experiments and staying extremely lean until one get the traction we want to see or the metrics we want to see or 
some sort of a sign of product market fit and then growing from there. And then also viewing tokens as a, as a post product market fit type thing. I think a lot of what we've seen the past year or two have been launching a token or, or an NFT collection and then building a product later, which, which I think there will be some great companies from that. But since the recent crypto crash and some other things, th- there will be more kind of like of a need for traction, for utility, for solving problems, for, for creating value. That'll be that'll be more of an expectation, I think, for for moving forward in the industry. But high level, that uh, I raised some money, I guess, December, January. The plan is to kind of stay lean and and stick to that playbook, and potentially raise again, potentially launch a token. We'll see. But uh, it's been it's been fun so far. Yeah, you had a great point on the tokenized version of like Twitter and YouTube. Because for example, back in the dot-com bubble, there would be sole companies that were developed just of making a web version of what already exists. For example, like a web version of a textbook, making everyone think that that's the solution to all the problems. <laughs> and I think we're going to see the same thing here in Web3 is people try to take existing Web2 companies and just put them on Web3, but that's not always necessary. Yep. And I think that's what we're seeing in the industry. Definitely, definitely. Uh, I think that's going to change more and more over the over the next year or two. In terms of, like, I mean, you bring up you know 1999 and 2000, and I think a lot of people are equating that to to right now as it relates to crypto. In terms of like very very similar kind of time period where there there's there's been a big run up the past year or two, and I think we we just had a crash. There could be more of a crash coming. We don't know how long this winter um, might last, but we'll start to see more and more utility uh, coming out of the out of this time period over the coming months and years. And what are some of your lessons or takeaways that you'd have for the founders struggling to raise capital during a time where there's a lot of down rounds and a downturn in venture capital? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the stage. The advice for someone who is a founder of Series A or Series B, I've never been at that stage, but uh, so I wouldn't be able to provide good advice. But the advice for someone at that stage for someone at the pre-seed or seed stage, or someone just thinking of an idea or trying to start an idea, I'd say that one, like the, the VC market has already changed just a matter of weeks in terms of money has, has tightened a lot. So if you've already raised, it's really trying to get that runway to last as, as long as possible. Or if you haven't raised, I mean, either way, just trying to get uh, as much traction. I know with, with myself, with my first startup, I made that mistake where I, I thought funding meant I had validation or that we we're on to something. And I quickly overhired and and burn through cash quickly. I'm seeing right now a lot of teams, including uh, our team, right now just just contractors. We're a very lean model where we can grow or decrease at a quicker rate depending on on what we're launching or what, what experiments we're working on. So that could be a good option, uh, just working with contractors or, or, or friends or college students, wherever it might be, before really making uh, a full-time, long-term hires. The other thing, Greeson, who talks about startups is just like being cockroach, like just trying to survive as long as possible until you get something going. I, I think that mentality uh, applies now more, more than ever, where it's it's just really trying to survive and, and until you get that, that product market fit or, or those metrics where investors are reaching out to you because you're on something. And to wrap it up here, what are some of your takeaways for early stage startup founders building companies during a potential period of an economic downturn? I'd say a mix of things. Uh, just based on my experience, one, like try to validate early if possible, uh, ideally without code if possible. I think Gog and Biani has a great article about this uh, called Minimum Viable Testing. And, and I worked with him for a bit and can't recommend his, his articles. And I think he has, actually has a course as well on early stage startups. But, but trying to validate or get some kind of traction early. I know I, with my first startup, I did the opposite of this, building something super complex, then launching it versus Compose AI, when we launched that, it was just a website we launched and, and got some good good traction, launched on product time, got some good momentum, and then raised some money based on that. So I'd say that would be one, you know, 
sell the ghost or or uh, sell than build rather than build and sell. Two would be very deliberate about markets in terms of if it is a, a venture-backed startup, thinking about like what inflection or what trend might be something very big in, in a couple of years. Web3 and AI and augmented reality and uh, virtual reality, those are all hot topics right now. But I've also heard from like founders to really try and focus on untech areas. And the ones that are already in the news might already be crowded. So maybe there's something that's a little more hidden or something that ideally is tying into a market that's exciting, but also something that you're excited about naturally, or ideally a pain point that you have some kind of convergence between all those factors would be, would be great. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'd say the other thing would be like, enjoy the process. Like startups can be stressful and they can have a roller coaster of ups and downs. Still, it's supposed to be fun at the end of the day. And I, and I think it's so easy I know myself, I, like I can get stressed out about, you know, things where I want them to be, or you see so many different articles about this person who's, you know, 11 raising 600 million or whatever and getting discouraged, but not trying to, you know, compare yourself and just, just enjoying the process and, and having friends or like living with other founders and, and something like launch house and being part of different communities with, with other founders. I, I think that also hearing other people's struggles and ups and downs as well can make it feel a little more common. So I think those three things, but I'd say those are those are three things that I'd uh, I'd recommend for someone starting out right now. Yeah, I totally agree, especially your point on MVP because back in the day when Netflix first started, their co-founders, so co-founders Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph, Mark mailed a DVD in the mail to Reed Hastings to see if that was even possible. And that was their test. Once they realized that was possible and they got the DVD intact, they started up the company with just that first test just to see if it would work. Yeah, yeah, I, I think stuff like that is just, is just super cool. And I think there, there there's a lot of a time. I, I think like the Dropbox founder did something similar with just posting video and getting people excited about it. Definitely, definitely. If you can do something like that, like that can save a lot of time. Definitely. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to leave a five-star review down below. And thank you, Landon, for taking the time to hop on the podcast today. It was a pleasure. All right. Thanks for chatting. Appreciate it.